So our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, has three sections, and we're in the third of those three. First section is survey of the Bible, and then the second section is understanding the Bible, principles of interpretation. And now this third and final section is um, applying the Bible. In fact, if you have those notes, you see in the upper right-hand corner, it says part three, applying the Bible. So I'll uh, catch you up to where we left off, and we have tonight and next week, and that's it. And we are, we are done. And then two weeks from tonight, there is a class for anybody who would like to attend that Dr. Combs will be leading on how to use some free Bible study software. So if you have any interest in learning how to uh, study the Bible better, one, and use this free software, then Dr. Combs will be going through that. That's two weeks from tonight, and that will be a combined class with uh, uh, those he's been teaching those of you that have been in here, and then the class that's uh, in the room behind me. Uh, so anybody who wants to show up uh, can do that. The reason that we have that extra class is because the kids' program goes a couple of weeks longer than than ours. And I won't bore you with all the reasons why we don't just extend ours, but there is, a believe it or not, a good reason for that. So we have that extra week. The kids' program will be going on that night. And then the following week after that, the kids have their uh, Pinewood Derby. So if you have children in our kids' program, they'll be doing that on May the, I think it's 3rd, and then that's the final night for everybody. Um, but for us, two weeks of left of this, and then two weeks from tonight, if you want to come to the How to Study the Bible with the free uh, study software, you can do that. And if you want, if you have kids in the Pinewood Derby, then I'm sure you'll be here for that. And if you don't have kids in the Pinewood Derby, you might want to come and just cheer for some of the kids in the uh, Pinewood Derby. But you're welcome to do any of that. Uh, so we have been uh, in the third and final section of our, our class, and we are on page two of those notes, and we've pretty well covered all of page two. But I'll just remind you briefly about uh, what that uh, tells us. On page two, you see at the top, it says three steps to applying the Bible. The first step is to understand the original application, and that is using the principles that we learned in section two on how to interpret the Bible. And then step two is to abstract the continuing truth. So there's the application to the original audience, but then because our times are different and our circumstances are different, then the application may not come straight across from them to us. It may be a different application for us, and so we have to abstract that. And we give some uh, barriers that you have to overcome in order to be able to to do that. Uh, One is making sure that to get from their application to abstracting to a way it can apply to us, take into account the kind of literature it is, whether it's something like poetry, whether it's a narrative, whether it's Uh, In the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, all of those uh, are different kinds of writing and they're to be interpreted in light of the kind of literature that that they are. And then there's the culture uh, to which the particular passage that you're looking at was was written. In the middle of page two, you've got examples like the parapet from Deuteronomy 22. And we discussed last week that that command in Deuteronomy 22, that when you build a house... Around the roof, you need to, you're required legally uh, to put a parapet around it. Well, that's like a guardrail. And in their culture, they had flat roofs. They entertained up there in the, uh, in the evenings especially because uh, it was cool uh, up there. And so it was a safety feature. 
So you abstract then to us how? Uh, you're not going to be building a guardrail around your roof since most of us don't live in homes with flat roofs. And even if we did, we don't go up there for entertainment purposes. But we saw applications like, here's what's being taught there. Uh, make your home safe for other people to be in so they don't get hurt. Uh, in fact, that's what that passage says. It says to uh, build that parapet so you won't be guilty of someone's blood. You won't be guilty of someone being harmed. Well, that applies then to us in ways that we need to keep our homes safe for guests to to come. Uh, Shoveling your walk, salting your walk, uh, having uh, meeting uh, fire and safety codes uh, in your house, those those kinds of things. And then there uh, there are theological issues that can create obstacles to applying today versus applying back then. One of those theological issues is the fact that God has not given us all of his revelation at one time, but rather he's given it out progressively, and that's what we mean when we say the progress of of revelation. And then some of it is written to refute false teachings that were current at the time, and we may not be facing that particular kind of false teaching, but nevertheless, we can glean principles, abstract principles, about how we face the false teaching that uh, we encounter in our day. So measure the distance between then and there and here and now uh, by, by overcoming these obstacles created by the type of literature it is, the cu- difference in culture, and the difference in the theology that they might have been addressing at the time it was written. And then you see B there. There are different kinds of passages, sidewalk and bridge passages. The sidewalk passage is one that addresses universal sins, It contains universal teaching about God, universal theology. And so that comes straight across to us. The distance between us and them is an easy walk on the sidewalk. That's the idea. But then you have other passages where that distance is a lot larger. You've got uh, bridge passages. And bridge passages are those uh, where the circumstances are are greatly different. We looked at 2 Samuel chapter 6 last week as an example of that and the Ark of the Covenant being transported uh, on a cart to Jerusalem. Well, this this whole thing is something you're not going to encounter. Uh, we, you don't have the Ark of the Covenant, and we don't have a, uh, a particular place where God especially meets, like you did in the Holy of Holies that was in the temple and the tabernacle. So that's all different for us. So that makes the gap between the application there and now uh, very wide. And then uh, summary judgment, an execution on someone who reached out and and touched it. Uh, Highly unusual. God can do that. Uh, Maybe he should in order to shake us up. Uh, We have a revival. If we had a few few executions, God style. You know, uh, Acts chapter 5, you had one in the New Testament with Ananias and, and Sapphira. You know, and they were uh, playing like they were giving everything they had to God when, in fact, they were holding some back. So they were lying, and they were lying before God and before His people. Uh, you know, so we pass the hat. You know, on Sunday, and a few people keel over. We'll. Uh, I'll tell you what we do immediately. Pass it again. <laughs> we'll pay off the building in no time. So you've got these these bridge passages. So what do you do with those? How do you how do you bridge that distance? Well, you apply. We say here what is taught about God, about sin, and about grace, and those are universal. Those are universal. You know, uh, God hasn't changed, and our tendency to sin has not 
changed, and the need for God's grace has not changed. So those three things uh, are continuing, and we can always apply those. And that brings you to step number three. State the continuing truth in modern terms. In what situations do we apply the continuing truth today? And uh, I'll give you an example of of how to do that uh, from a book that I read some years ago, a very helpful book on preaching. It's called Christ-Centered Preaching. And Brian Chappell, who wrote that book, in Chapter 2, has this uh, very helpful uh, suggestion that, that he makes and uses in his own preaching. He says that in each passage, you should look for Uh, This is what he calls it, the fallen condition focus. The fallen condition focus. And here's what he means by that. He's saying that the passages in the Bible are written to address some aspect of the fallen condition. The fallen condition focus. Some aspect of the fallen condition. Now, what do we mean by the fallen condition? Well, it means the condition that has resulted from the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. And the condition that results from sin uh, is uh, as a result of things we do, we sin. So there are the condition uh, is because of things we, uh, we do. But then that condition also exists because of things other people do to us but then it also exists just because uh, we live in a sin-cursed world and when I say the sin-cursed world I mean the environment itself so it may not be something you personally did it may not be something somebody else personally did but we're affected by the fact that we live in a fallen world so sickness, disease um, natural disasters all of those are a result of the curse on the environment in which we live so the fallen condition are those conditions that obtain because of the entrance of sin and that includes the consequences of your own sin uh, the effects of other people's sin but also living in a fallen environment all of that now you take all of that and that's a bunch right I mean that's uh, life in a fallen world. And the Bible is addressing aspects of those conditions, the fallen condition. So look for what aspect of the fallen condition is being focused on, the fallen condition focus in a particular passage. So you see on page two there, some of you already flipped the page, but I wasn't done yet, okay? I'm doing this fallen condition focus thing. And you see toward the top on page two under genre, poetry. As an example, Psalm 121. And we mentioned last week that Psalm 121 speaks of the fact that God will keep your foot from, from, from slipping and keep you from harm on your, on your travels. Well, how's the, how does the fallen condition relate to that? When you think about that. You know, you're going to go somewhere and you have fear of being harmed. So how, how, how does that relate to the fact that we live in a fallen world? Well, here's the way to ask it to yourself. Did Adam and Eve have to worry about that before they sinned? 
Did they have to worry about being harmed? Did they, did they have to worry about being injured? They didn't have to worry about any of this, any of that stuff. We have to worry about it because, you know, someone, someone might rob you. You might get in an accident on your way there. Uh, uh, any number of things can, can happen on your journey. But that's all because of the fallen condition. You know, uh, why, do people, why do people fall off of roofs and, and get harmed? Now, this is part of the fallen condition. People didn't fall off roofs in, in a perfect world. You know, in the kingdom, people won't, people won't get hurt. Did you know that? What a beautiful thing. Uh, nobody dies. Nobody gets sick. So it's part of the fall, it's part of the fallen condition. So you think about what is God addressing with regard to the condition we are in with with sin in, in the world. And you, and and every passage can be, sometimes it takes a little work, but can be looked at with that with that focus. Uh, you take the gospels. And we said on page two that the Gospels are focusing on who Jesus is and identifying uh, the fact that he is the promised one. Well, how does that relate to the fallen condition? You know, in all four of the Gospels, you've got the works and words of Jesus certifying that he's the Messiah. Well, why do we need a Messiah? Well, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? And the fallen condition. You know, God says uh, to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So God has promised this one who will come. You get to the New Testament, the Gospels, and he has come. So the whole reason you've got him coming and you have his words and works proving who he is is because he's the answer to the fallen, the fallen condition. So you you know, throughout the Bible, you can you can do that. You think to yourself, what aspect of sin? And I don't, as I've said, don't just mean your personal sin, but sin in general, fallenness, is being addressed here. And with that fallen condition focus, now having identified that, then what is God doing about it? So you ask yourself first, what is the fallen condition that's being focused on here? And then ask about God. You know, where is God in this? And where might God be in passages, circumstances of life that deal with the fallen condition? I'm asking you. Think about this. What might God be doing in the midst of sin that's happening? Uh, I'm asking, what might God? What might God do? We could do a number of things, right? He can have mercy, but He can also execute judgment. So, in passages where you see judgment being executed, that's God's response to an aspect of the fallen condition. Or when you see God's mercy being given, it's an aspect of God's response to the fallen condition. So what's the fallen condition? And and what is God doing in this? Before I get off of what's God what is God doing in it? You know, he, he might be judging, he might be showing mercy, he might be doing both. 
uh, he might be setting things up for something else. So what's God's activity in this? And and often God is in the midst of the fallen condition. He's setting things up for something to come later. Now, what do we call that in theology? We call that God's providence. God's providence is at work in this circumstance. So take Joseph. It's a very clear example of that, the life of Joseph. And Joseph and the jealousy of his brothers, and then him being sold into slavery, and them being apart for for years and by distance. But in God's providence, God works through all of that. So the fallen condition, you see the treachery of the, and the jealousy of the brothers. But what's God doing in all this? God's working all of this together for good in his providence. And we know the end of the story. You know that Joseph rises to prominence in Egypt and his brothers have to come after a famine years later and they don't recognize Joseph at first. And then finally he reveals who he is and they're, they're, they're hungry and they're also now terrified because <laughs> he's going to get us back. And he says, don't fear. You intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, the God meant it for good piece is God's activity in all of this, God's providence in all of this. So look for the fallen condition focus and then ask yourself, what is God doing here? What's it say about God? And then in particular, a third and final thing. Uh, Look for God's grace in particular. God's grace. Because when you find the fallen condition that's being focused upon, even if God is judging in the, in the moment or in that event, it is always connected to God's grace in some way. And you'll see that pattern as you read through Scripture. If you'll look at it the way I'm describing and say, how do we see God's grace here? How's God's grace to these sinful people or these miserable people? When I say miserable, I just mean they're in misery because of the fallen condition. And what does God's grace look like there? Read about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. As they're wandering in the wilderness, having disobeyed God, right? Why are they wandering in the wilderness? And why are they wandering for 40 years? God says you're going to wander a year for every day. That's what he says in Numbers 1, 34, I think it is. Numbers chapter 1 and verse 34. You're going to wander in the wilderness a year for every day that you disobeyed me when I told you go into the promised land and take it. And they decided to say, well, not so fast. And so for 40 days they delay. They send the two spies in, or the uh, 12 spies in. And two say, yes, we can go. Ten say, no. They say, you know, we got ten delegates for Trump. <laughs> and so majority wins. So we're not going to go in. And God says, you're going to wander for a year for every day, 40 years. So why are they wandering? The whole fact that they're wandering. And then all of the these, these uh, books, Book of Numbers, 
that tell you about their experiences in wandering, the whole reason they're wandering is because there's part of the fallen condition going on here. They disobeyed God. They didn't trust God. But what's God doing in all of that? God is judging, but he's also showing mercy to them. He could leave them out there to fend for themselves. He feeds them. He guides them. And God's grace is extended to them. And in particular, look for ways in which God's grace is seen in the one who would come, in Jesus. And if you will look, you will see that, even in the first part of your Bible, you will see pointers toward Jesus. So they're in the wilderness, and the people are are dying of disease. And what does God say? He says, put the snake on a pole, serpent on a pole, and hold it up. Well, who's that pointing to? That's pointing to the one to whom we would look, who will be lifted up. You know, you look at that, and and you see the grace of God that is ultimately fulfilled. Now, they're out there in the wilderness. They're seeing a snake on a pole. They're not thinking Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Jesus doesn't come till many years later. But you look at it and you go, look at God's grace and it ultimately give it to us in its in its most majestic form in the person and work of Jesus. You start to look at your Bible that way then. And then you start to get the most out of your Bible, which is what this class is called. How to get the most out of your Bible. You read the stories. You determine what kind of passage it is, what kind of literature it is. Put it in its original context, but then start asking yourselves these kinds of questions. What's the fallen condition focus? What's it say about God? What's God doing here? And in particular, uh, how is God extending his grace to people in this passage? Now, I'm going to be doing this over the next few weeks on Sunday mornings. We start this week with Genesis 6-9 and Noah and building an ark and God judging the world. And all of the stuff I just said to you, fallen condition focus. I mean, what's the fallen condition focus? It's pretty easy. You know, the opening part of chapter 6 tells you that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. <laughs> so, what's the fallen condition? I mean, depravity had degenerated to the point that God says, I'm going to judge all the earth. Uh, So what's it tell you about the fallen condition? The fallen condition left to itself will become worse and worse. The fact that we are not yet in the situation that they were in in Genesis 6 is not because we were better than them, right? That we're better than them. How would we be better? How would... How would people today be better than people then? The Bible teaches people are the same and every person is a son or daughter of Adam and Eve. And they all come into the world with the same sin nature. But God's common grace restrains the effects of our depravity. But if those restraints are removed, left to itself, look out. And that's what they had. Such that the evil was so pervasive And God, then, is going to judge it. So what's God doing? That's the fallen condition focused. And what's God doing there? Well, he's he's going to judge 
But is he only going to judge? No. There's always this there's always this glimmer of grace. And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah and his family are rescued, delivered, saved. Right? So if we ask you, if, if you're a member of our church, you had a membership application you had to fill out, and then you had to give your testimony to our leadership team. And one of the things you told us is when you got saved. And by saved, do you ever think about what that means? It means rescued. It means delivered. That's what it means. These people are these people are rescued from the judgment of God in this ark that that God provided. And you see the grace of God. And again, they don't know anything about Jesus, but ultimately pointing to the one who delivers us, the one who rescues us in Jesus. So you can do that over and over again in in the Bible. Fallen condition focus. What is God doing in all of this? What's it say about, tell us about God? And then uh, where? how is God demonstrating his grace? Okay? Now you can feel free to turn to the next page. And for the remainder of our time today and next week, we're going to look at passages from different sections of the Bible. And glean principles out of those sections that can then be applied to our own lives. So that's the idea here. And we start in Genesis and the early chapters of Genesis, first three. We're going to look at the book of Ruth. And we're going to look at uh, the Gospel of Matthew as well. So we're going to look at different kinds of different kinds of books. Uh, in particular, though, books that are more bridge passages rather than sidewalk. Notice in those three samples that we're going to go through these next two weeks of Genesis and Ruth and Matthew, that none of those are the letters of the New Testament. And the reason I haven't used those as an example is because those are those are the ones that would lend themselves to sidewalk passages. Those are those are easier for application. Because they're letters written directly to people in churches. They're in the same age dispensation that we are in. And so many of the instructions come directly across from them to to us. So I wanted to take ones that maybe don't come across so directly to us. Now, with regard to Genesis, uh, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know that we have restarted then our series in the opening chapters of Genesis. So some of what I'm going to say here about principles from the opening chapters of Genesis we covered in that series. So I apologize for the redundancy. Uh, So if you want to fall asleep while I do this, that would be okay. If you fell asleep in church the first time I did it, stay awake this time. Okay, So you at least get it one of the two times. All right, so here's opening passages of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said... This is verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, I believe uh, strongly that if you get the first three chapters of the Bible, then you've got you have a lifetime of principles by which to live. First three chapters. Everything else in the Bible is based on these first three chapters. And if you get those first three chapters, and you squeeze out of those first three chapters every applicational principle you can, uh, then you've got a worldview to live by. Uh, so we're, we're going to get a few here. I've been trying to wring some out in the series that we've, we've been doing. But as a writing project, one of the things I would love to do is take time to get every last principle you can get out of the first three chapters of the Bible and, and expand on that and write a book on that because I believe it would be invaluable to God's people to, to have that because it's all there in those first three chapters. If you really get that down. Remember that one of the things we wanted to do in this class, I told you at the very beginning, is take some of the intimidation out of the studying the Bible because people are intimidated by it because it's big and it's old. Well, that's one way you take the intimidation out. Understand that everything's there in those first three chapters. So narrow it down to three chapters. Get everything you can because everything else comes, comes out of that. All right, so what are some of the things that come out of here? What does this say about God? You know, in the beginning, God. And I'm just asking you to ask yourself that. What is, what is the Bible telling us about God in its very first line? And one of the things it's telling us is what I have here for you, that all of life is God-centered. All of life is God-centered. Who's the subject at the very beginning, none other than God. And of course, that's as it that's as it should be, and as we should expect it to be. If indeed God exists, and of course He does, and God created the world, then it has to start with God. So life starts with with God, and life is centered on God from the very from the very beginning of of the Bible. Now, as you apply that, then. In your life, how how does that apply to the stuff that's going on in your life? All of life is God-centered. Well, what are you whining about now? What's the latest thing you're mumbling and grumbling about? And one way for you to put that in proper perspective is for you to remember the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning... It doesn't have your name. In the beginning, God. So a corollary of this is, if all of life is God-centered, a corollary of that is, it's not about who? It's not about me. It's not about you. So you see how just beginning to just ask yourself these kinds of questions, what does this say about God? What does this say about, what does this say about me? It's about him. It's not about me. And that has relevance to 
the stuff I'm going through today. All of life is is God-centered. God was there in the beginning, and then God created the heavens and the earth. As we've seen on Sunday mornings, when it says he created the heavens and the earth, that's a way of stating um, it's a you know it's a phrase that includes everything. So it, it could say God created everything. Why doesn't it? Why doesn't it just say God created everything? Well, here's one reason. That God apparently wanted to separate out a particular portion of everything. And what's that particular portion of everything in that first line? In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural. But there's one earth. And instead of just saying God created everything, it says he created the heavens, but singles out, for special mention, the earth. And when you get to chapter 2 and verse 4, as I said on Sunday, chapter 2 and verse 4 reverses the order. It's the earth and the heavens. Because the focus then in chapter 2 is on God's activity on earth and the first man and woman and giving them to each other and the instructions that he gave to them and, and so on. So in the beginning, God created everything. And just as an aside, if God created everything in the beginning, then what existed before the beginning? And what else? Anything else? In the beginning, there was God. And in the beginning, at the at the beginning of human history, or of history, God created. And prior to God creating, there wasn't nothing but God. So, where were the angels? You ever thought about that? So, where were the angels? Weren't they created? They, they were. Um, they must have been created and then been all good when the Bible was saying they were all good. Everything was good. Right. And so then there had to have been the fall sometimes between that and when Adam right. and Eve got tempted. But when were they created, do you think? You know, um, were they. So a lot of people think that, okay, when it says in the beginning, it's not like the real beginning. Because there were angels hanging around. We all know there were angels hanging around for a long time, you know, going back. So there's God and there's the angels. And then he decides to create the earth and, and all of that. So that's what a lot of us think. But I personally don't think that. I don't think that there were angels. I don't think there was anything prior to Genesis 1-1. There was God. And here's one of the reasons I don't think that. Is because this phrase, in the beginning, is used elsewhere in your Bible. And some of you might remember, in your New Testament, John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, most commentators believe that John purposely chose that phrase in the beginning to associate what he's going to say with the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then it goes on to say, and he, the Word, created all things. And then goes on to use this kind of tortured language in verse 3. And without him was not anything made that has been made. 
That's what it says. And he made all things, and apart from him was not anything made that has been made. All right. Now, do you see what John's trying to do? He's trying to say that, that in the beginning, when Jesus existed, nothing else did. That's his point. That he can't be a created being because nothing had been created. He's the one who created it all. So the Jehovah's Witness who wants to tell you Jesus was created doesn't understand the argument that that John is making. But if there was stuff before the beginning, then that line of argument John's trying to make is, is shot. So he's assuming in the beginning there wasn't nothing except God. And Jesus is God. The Word was God. And he created all things. And then that includes the angels. So the angels were created in that first creation week. Probably early on the first day. Now the reason I say that is because Job tells us that the morning stars, the the angels sang when they saw God creating. So he creates the angels early on day one and then they see God's creative activity. And they they praise God as as he creates. Yes. Wouldn't that be part of the heavens when it says God created the heavens and the No, the heavens are the bodies. You know, the heavenly the heavenly bodies, the, the stars and so on. In fact, it goes on to tell us um, in the days of creation that very thing. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. Those are the heavens. So how do we know what the heavens are? He tells us in chapter one. So it's not that you know the heavenly beings doesn't say that. It's the heavens, and then those days of creation tell us what those heavens, those heavens are. So the angels aren't mentioned. All that that verse is telling is everything was created in that first six days. Um, God created everything, and so all of life is God-centered. At the beginning, there was God, and there was no one and no thing other than God. So many things you can wring out of that. I got to move on. But, you know, so a God who can create life out of nothing. That's what you've got. And then as you read chapter 1, how did he create life out of nothing? By fiat. By saying it. And God said. Well, if God says, and it is, (laughs) then how does that apply to you? Has God said stuff to you? He said a lot to you, hasn't he? He wrote a book to you. And when he says the things he says, then those things are absolutely true. And from the very opening words of the Bible, you see that. So that that applies to you. You know, you're going through your stuff and you're wondering, you know, does God really want it this way? Well, if he says it that way, that's what he wants. And he's got the power to make it happen exactly as he desires. All right. All of life is God-centered. Secondly, here's another principle. God has complete authority over his world. God has complete authority over his world. Now, where do you see that? Well, you see God commanding. God creates, and he says to them, this is what you're going to do. So God's the one assigning what's going to happen. 
He's telling the he's telling the man. He tells him to to rule, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. And who is God consulting with when he does this? Of course, no one. And later in your Bible, you find that. You know, to whom will you compare the Lord? And who has not? Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been His counselor? And the answer is no one. No one's His counselor. So who's He asked? Nobody. He tells you. He has complete authority. And that word authority means He's authorized to do what He does, say what He says. Now, you, we can abuse authority, or we can usurp authority. We can take authority that's not ours, that we've not been authorized to carry out. But that's because we don't have all authority. Can God can God usurp authority? No, he has all authority. So he, there's nothing for him to usurp. He's already got it all. So God has all authority, and so God is authorized by definition to do what he does and say what he says. Well, guys and gals, from the opening lines of the Bible, you start to see your life affected. You know, this this God, it's about him, it's not about me. And this God is authorized, because he is God, to tell me what to do. And my response, as you apply this to yourself, as I apply it to myself, what is our response to be? It's to be unquestioned obedience, right? I mean, where would the questions come from? <laughs> so, and that's why in Romans 9, you know, Paul says, can the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? And the answer is no. He's authorized. Now, when I say can the thing form, I don't mean do you have the ability to move your lips and say that. You can in that sense. It's saying, should you? And the answer is no, because he has complete authority. I feel like giving a, an invitation. <laughs> Not really, because this, this stuff just applies to all of us, all right? And then here's a third principle. He is apart from his creation. Not part of creation. He is apart from his creation, not part of creation. Right? In the beginning, God created. So there's creation and there's God. And they're not the same. Well, you want some contemporary uh, application of that? <laughs> you know, God is not in the stuff, He's not in the material. God's not in a tree. I don't want to wax too political here, but Christians who understand this aren't tree huggers. Okay? We don't worship the environment. The environment is not God. God made the environment. Now, we're stewards of the environment. So to be an environmentalist, looking at it from a stewardship standpoint... The dominion mandate that is in verses 26 through 28 to rule over it and subdue it, we're to manage it on God's behalf now. So, and we're to take care with it. But we take care 
of it because we're managing it on God's behalf, not because God's in it somehow. So, you know, on Earth Day, I think that's in May, is it in May? I don't know, whenever Earth Day is. And, you know, there really is no such thing as Mother Earth. Okay? I mean, Earth is like dirt and water. Okay? It's, it's material. It's matter. And God made it. It's part of creation. But it is in no way to be deified and to be worshipped. And then I've got a fourth there that's just nothing because the idea is you could fill in any number of these as you think about what is this saying about God? And then what is this saying about what is this saying about me? And then think about God's grace. Then as he carries out you know, life being God centered. I mean, just think about that. Life is God centered. And how does the grace of God attach to that? That life is God's son. Because that sounds just like, well, you know, he got here first. However he got here, and so he gets to make the rules, and he's the authority. Well, no, no, no. This God who was here first, and has always been, is by his nature a gracious God. That's his nature. So in his centering life on himself and making us, creating us, that's actually a gracious act on God's part. Follow this. Because we get to enjoy God. Now, you know, if I were to say to you, hey, look, I'm letting you come to this church so you can enjoy me. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Carolyn. (laughs) We laugh. We say, what a jerk. Okay, whatever. Thank you for just laughing. Because, of course, life's not centered. Nothing's centered on me. Nothing's centered on you. But life's centered on God, and God is worthy of that. So when you read this, it's all centered on God, and it's not about you. That can sound like a downer. Man, I wish it was about me. But in fact, there's a sense in which God makes it about you. Never ultimately. It's ultimately about him. But as I preached on Sunday, you know, it's about God. That was the first line. It's about God in our outline. And the second one was it involves us. That God is in his grace involves us. He lets us be involved in learning of him and knowing him and experiencing him. And he is the best thing, and I use that language advisedly, he is the best one, the best person in the universe to experience. So this is actually a very good and gracious thing. And to be under God's authority is a very good and gracious thing. Because this is a good God. And he knows all things, and he knows what's best for you. All right. So I really mean it when I say everything I need to know I learned in Sunday school. And in the first few lines of the Bible. So what does this say about us? We are completely dependent on God. That's why when you come to your New Testament and the great apostle is speaking to philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, 
in verse 26, Paul says to them, Acts 17, 26, he says that he does not live in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. Because he doesn't need anything, does he? I mean, one of the principles you could have about God is he's independent. He's completely independent. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. And so following up on that, and by the way, following up on creation, because in verse 26 of Acts chapter 17, where Paul says that he does not dwell in temples made by human hands as though he himself needed anything. But before that, this is how he starts. The God who created the heavens and the earth is Lord of everything. That's how he starts in verse 24. He starts with creation. He starts going back to Genesis 1. And then he gives the application of that to these philosophers and everybody else. And that means because he's the Lord of everything and he created everything, then here's one of the implications of that. He doesn't need anything. But he, he goes on to say, he does not dwell in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's what he says. And that marvelous speech to those pagan philosophers is based on the opening chapter of the Bible. God created everything. So everything and everyone is dependent on him. We are completely dependent on God. Now, again, immediately you might say to yourself, you know, it'd be cool to be independent. But it is a very good thing, the more you get to know God, it is a very good thing to be dependent on that kind of God, the more you get to know Him. But in our fallenness, we don't automatically assume that. We don't automatically assume it's good to be dependent. Because we're dependent on people too. And it's not always good to be dependent on people. Because people are not, de- what, dependable. Is God dependable? What's another word for that? He's faithful. He's faithful. And, and, and guys and gals, the fact that God is independent, then flowing of that means we're dependent. You know, there's a lot of theology there. Um, The reason God can be absolutely faithful, the reason God can say what he means and carry out what he says, the reason God can do that is because he is over all of his creation and there is no one and no thing that can influence or deter him from his course of action. This independence of God is what then allows him to be faithful. Think about it. If he were not independent, if he were dependent in any way, then he could never know for sure that what he says he's going to do is actually going to happen because it's dependent on someone or something else. But nothing God God does is dependent on anyone or anything. And that's why he can say through the prophet Isaiah, I will do all that I please. That is why Job says to him, no plan of yours can be thwarted. It's impossible for a plan of God or any promise of God to be thwarted because he's independent. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything. All right, number two. 
What does it say about us? Well, you know, you get to verse verses 26 and 27. And it says, then it says, and God said to them. And you see that in the middle at the top of the page there. It says, God blessed them and said to them. Now, prior to that, you don't, you don't have that. You don't have God saying to anybody. You have God saying, and it is, but to this point, he hasn't said to anybody in particular, but he creates the man and the woman in his image, and he says to them. He gives them instruction. Well, what does that mean? That means that we were made to know God's voice. We were made to know God's voice. He says to them, and they have the innate capacity to understand him. Made to know, just because they are humans in the image of God, the voice of the one who made them. Adam and Eve don't go to school. They don't have to learn the voice of God. They know it. They were made to know it. Well, what kinds of applications are there of that? You know, this stuff lays the foundation for everything. goes forward. Everything else that follows flows from it. So you can go to places like Acts chapter 17. You can go to Romans 8, 28. You know, that, that uh, all things, that God works all things together for good in his control and his authority over creation. But you can also go to Romans 1 in this regard. That we were made to know God's voice. And here's how. Because there in Romans 1, the Bible tells us that that in sin, people suppress what they know about God. They suppress it. They hold it down. And then it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, although they knew, in your English translation it says, although they knew God, But literally, here's what it says. Although they knew the God. It actually has the definite article in Greek. Although they knew the God, they did not glorify him as a God. But they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So they knew, human beings knew God, know God. But because of sin... They don't worship him as God. Now, how do they know God? How can Paul in Romans 1 say that all people know God? Here's how. They were made to know God. And they were made to know God's voice. But they suppress it. Look, you can't suppress what you don't have. You suppress it because you have it. They have the knowledge of God. But they don't want the knowledge of God. So he goes on to say... They did not want to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. They don't want to think about God. For sinful human beings, in our natural state, God is like a bad experience from your past. And you want to repress that memory. So they suppress it. But they can only suppress it because they have it. People know God. That's why I said on Easter, there is no such thing as a real, honest-to-goodness atheist. People were made to know God. They do know God, but they suppress what they know about God. 
We were made to know God's voice. And then thirdly, we are unique. Made in his image. Alone among creation, humanity is made in the image of God. And then you should ask yourself, well, what does that mean? What's it made to be mean to be made in the image of God? We've talked about that on Sunday mornings. We talk about that in our um, master plan for life class, which we'll be doing in the fall. So if you've never taken that, you should take that. Uh, what is that? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? But for now, just understand we're the only ones who got it. <laughs> we're the only ones made to reflect God back to God. No one else, no, no other creature in creation is made in his image. Only humanity. So we are privileged, I said on Sunday. But we are also sinful. But we're privileged. We have this privileged position. Well, what does that mean practically? It's a ton of things. But think about just some of the stuff going on in our world now. Um, you know, so where are you? Where are you? Don't raise your hand. Don't answer. Just, just think about it. So where are you on the like animal rights stuff? Okay. I'm not asking you should we treat animals, you know, cruelly or anything. I'm not asking you that. I'm not in favor of treating animals in, in a cruel way. But animal rights. There, there are lots of people, more and more people, talking about rights for animals that are equivalent to rights of humans. Well, from a biblical standpoint, animals and humans are not on the same plane. And, and animals were made for us. Okay? They didn't get a say in that. They're made for us. Um, we eat them. They try to they try to eat us, okay. Uh, Dr. McHugh, my theology professor, used to say, you know, so for the people that are the big animal rights, PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals, okay, the PETA types, a couple things. One, several years ago, I heard a sports radio broadcast where the guy was making fun of the PETA people, and he was having his radio show out in a parking lot of some shopping center, inviting people to come over, and he's having a big barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> And instead of PETA, he was calling it Mita. <laughs> anyway, but Dr. McCune used to say, our theology professor, he used to say, look, I'll stop eating animals when they stop eating each other. <laughs> okay. And that's actually true biblically. I mean, there comes a time in the future when animals will stop eating each other in the kingdom. But now, in a, in a fallen world, they eat each other and they are our food. And God gives them to us for our food. So we are unique. And one thing that means is we're not on the same plane with animals. Then. And then there are many other principles from Genesis 1 through 3 that we will look at in a quicker fashion. But I spent a lot of time on those because I'm telling you just a handful of principles like that, if you tease those out, they affect so many aspects of your personal life and our world. Okay? So we'll continue that next week. See you then, Lord willing.